Let's bow for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, as we come this morning now to open your word, God, we pray that you would speak. We pray that you would help us to, to hear what it is you're communicating to us about who we are, about who you are, about the lives that we live, and uh, how you have called us and challenged us to uh, communicate the joy, uh, peace, the hope that we find in you to a world that desperately needs to understand that. Lord, we pray that you would help us to truly conceive of and acknowledge this morning that Jesus is life and that in him we find our future, we find our hope, and only in him do we find such. We praise you and thank you in Christ's name. Amen. One of the biggest moments for a parent is that moment when their child takes their first step. And it's a big moment because of the freedom that it communicates, but it's also a big moment because a lot of times parents have invested a lot of time in seeing that take place. Sometimes it's a matter of weeks, sometimes it's a matter of months. But with each child, you see the parent pour into that child, hoping to, to get them to that moment of being able to walk. And each child takes a different path. Some children crawl for a while, some never do. Some surf the furniture as they learn how to walk and what that means. Some will only walk when their parents are holding their hands. Some will learn through using a walker uh, of some sort. But at the end of the journey is that moment when the child steps away from the aid that they were receiving in order to walk to do it on their own. And this end is really just the beginning. Because from that point forward, you're chasing it. There's an old saying, no one moves faster than a toddler who's just been asked what you'd put in your mouth. <laughs> There's truth in that. We learn how to walk, and then we learn how to run. And today, uh, we are beginning a journey through uh, the epistles of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. And, and as we look in this book, we're going to encounter the word walk over and over and over again. John is instructing this church what it means to walk in Christ, what it means to live a new life, what it means to journey out from where they're at, to move from walking to running, to move from, from struggling and, and holding on to things to, to get by spiritually to where there is this freedom of expression, where is this power, where this, uh, there is this encouragement. Now, one of the issues that John is, is dealing with is a church that's struggling theologically with who Jesus is. They're struggling theologically with what it means to be a follower of Christ. And are, are there other ways to heaven than through Jesus? Are there other paths that we might follow? Is there a special knowledge we might attain to? And as they're struggling with that, they're also struggling with the life that they live. They're struggling with their impact on the culture around them. What should that look like? What should that include? What should that involve? And what we see is John tackling the issue theologically. Part of the issue is theology, but part of the issue is lifestyle. It's practice. It's, it's our experience. But, Paul, or, but John chooses instead to focus on the theology. Why? Because it's in the theology that we begin to understand the truth of who we are. And right thinking often almost always leads to right action. And so we see John tackling that. 
Now, what is the issue that we deal with today as believers? A big issue that we deal with is whether or not Christ is, in fact, the only way. Do all the world religions essentially pray to the same God? 64% of adults believe that all world religions pray to the same God. Get this, 48% of evangelicals, that's us, 48% of evangelicals believe that. It's hard to believe, isn't it? And yet, that's where we're at. Why? Because it's easier to assume that. It's safer for us. It doesn't call on us to do anything. If everybody's essentially praying to the same God, if everybody's essentially following at least a path to heaven, then there's nothing on our shoulders. We don't have to do anything. Everybody's good. I'm comfortable in my skin. You're comfortable in yours. I do my thing. You do your thing. We're all going to end up in the same place. But is that consistent with what Scripture teaches? Is that consistent with what we know of who Jesus is? I don't think it is. And so let's look this morning in 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, and, and look at what John has to say about Jesus here. He's, he's laying his foundation for the rest of his book. In, in these four verses, he's going to outline many themes that he's going to return to in the rest of this letter that he's writing. Themes that define who we are. Themes that define who Christ is. And so as, in looking at them, we come away with some answers about what it is we need to be pursuing and who it is we need to be knowing. Beginning in verse 1, it says, What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have observed and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, that life was revealed. And we have seen it, and we testify and declare to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. What we have seen and heard, we also declare to you, so that you have fellowship along with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. John here begins this issue by addressing the fact that Jesus is life. The, the problem with the church today is, is we tend to base our relationship on shared experience rather than shared theology. We, we tend to, to look at our circumstance and our situation and we go to a church because, well, I connect with that group. Or we go to a church because... Well, uh, they have good food there. We go to a church because they have good singing there. We go to a church because they have good preaching there. It's the experience that drives us to the churches that we attend instead of a focus upon the connection we have in who Christ is. And that's the reason we have so many different churches today is because we've let experience drive us rather than theology. And so John's excursus here in terms of answering this question, who is Jesus should be at the forefront of our response to life situations of, of why and, and what we're encountering. He is who he claims has saved us. He is, he is who we claim to emulate. He is who brings us together in whatever relationship we have as a believer. But it's interesting here that as Paul, or I keep saying Paul, as John is talking about Jesus, he uses the, the pronoun what over and over again. What was from the beginning? What we have heard? What we have seen? Some of your translations say that which. 
Why such an impersonal pronoun for such a personal topic? Why is it that, that John here is, is bringing Jesus in as, as this impersonal relative pronoun? Because what he's trying to get us to see is that the word proclaimed cannot be separated from the word as person. The message helps us see the man. The man defines the message. It's a holistic pronoun. The person, the words, and work of Jesus is what we teach. We don't just have this, this uh, vague idea, this vague concept of this Jesus that we have a relationship with. We have a revealed word that tells us who he is, that communicates who he is, and those two are, are intertwined so that there is this challenge for us that we must respond to. We don't define him. He defines us. Why? Because as John says here, he is from the beginning. He is God. In beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The gospel of John begins in a very similar fashion. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. It's a holistic view. We have to see Jesus for all that he is, not just the parts that we like. Not just the parts that make us feel comfortable or at ease. Jesus is our friend. We like that concept, but he's also our king and our judge. And we need to hold both of those realities in tension as we walk and as we minister and as we serve. John says that we have experienced Jesus within history. We have heard him. We have seen him. We have observed him. We have touched him, he says. He's not an idea that is preached or a message that enlightens. He is God within history. Eternal life is not the byproduct of some enlightenment or knowledge. It is found through God channeling life to us through the historical event of the incarnation. God became flesh. And this is why that's important. Because if God has stepped into history, if God has become a man, he strips away every pretense of man that we can become God. that's the reality that we all struggle with. I think most of us would say, of course I'm not God. I don't see myself as God or anything like that. And yet, every decision we make that's in opposition to his desire, his design for our life, is a, doc- is a declaration that I am God. That's what it is. It's saying, I know better than you. And if you know better than God, then by definition what you're saying is, I am God. But because God has broken into history, because God became man, he's defined for us exactly what that looks like. And none of us measure up. None of us can equate to what Jesus accomplished here on this earth. We can no longer as well do our own thing. We must do what this man wants us to do. We can no longer pose as self-sufficient because We must do what this one man says, and that is that we are sick with sin and must come to him for healing. We can no longer depend on our own wisdom to find life because this one man who lived for 
40-some years uh, here on this earth in a little country in the Middle East says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I want you to notice the verb in these sentences is not that Jesus gives life, but Jesus is life. If he, if he just gives it, then he could be one of many options. Someone else may be able to give it as well. But John reveals to us, Jesus reveals to us, I am the life. He is life. What that means is there's no other route, there's no other path. You want life, you have to go to him because he is life. And so that proclamation, that declaration of who he is, calls us and challenges us to get rid of our own notions and our own perspective. And that life that he gives does what? It meets our deepest needs. What is our deepest need? What are our deepest needs? We all want to feel like we belong, right? I mean, isn't that one of our most felt needs as, as people? Even those of us who are, who are introverts who feel like, you know, I can do a lot of this on my own. I, people wear me out. You know, even if that's your mindset in a lot of ways, we still want to feel like we belong, we're, that we're a part of something bigger. We, we need to know who we are in the midst of that something bigger. What defines me? Everybody faces that question sometimes, many times in their life. Who am I? Why am I here? What am I supposed to be doing? These are all thoughts that, that race through our heads. Sometimes 2 a.m. in the morning. We feel tired, we feel sleepy, but we can't go to sleep because we're struggling with who we are and what we ought to be doing. Jesus answers that question. Jesus gives us that direction and that purpose in life. If you're in relationship with him, you are a child of the living God. Part of the biggest enterprise the world's ever known, the enterprise of God reaching out to man, connecting in a meaningful way. You are who he says you are. If you're not in relationship with him, if you've never entered into that moment that, where you've connected with God, where you've surrendered to God, where you've placed your life in his hands, then you are a wanderer. You're lost. You're without hope. You're without a future. You're without life. And so Jesus comes in and he answers that deepest need. He answers those biggest questions and he tells us, Find yourself in me. And when we do, John says, what? He says we experience fellowship. Now the word for fellowship that's used here is koinonia. Perhaps you've seen it used in the name of some get-together at a church or something like that. We experience koinonia here. It's, it's something that is significant. It's a common shared experience. It can be a shared labor. It can be a shared enjoyment. 
of an experience. You ever had that moment where you've had just this amazing moment and you look around and no one's there to share it with you? And you get just a little bit less high than you were just a moment before. Because you're like, did you see that? And no one was there to see it. No one was there to share in it. Koinonia is that is that is is that moment when you turn around and say, "Did you see that?" And someone says, "Yes, I saw that. That was amazing." And together you share something bigger than yourself. That's koinonia. That's the fellowship that John's talking about here. And he says, when you come to Christ, you experience that type of fellowship with each other. Now, the experience is important, and that's often where we start. But unless we have identified what the common shared experience is, it becomes about us and not about what it should be. Christian community is not passing association of people who share common sympathies. It's not intellectual consensus. It is a partnership in experiencing Jesus Christ. It is therefore both a horizontal and a vertical realities. We connect with other believers. Our deepest fellowship is possible only with those who share a belief in the deepest truths of life. Dating relationships, marriage relationships, work relationships, friendships. You can have wonderful experiences like that and not know Christ. But you will never have the depth and the wonder of it that you could have if you both did know Christ. Jesus makes everything deeper. Jesus makes everything better. And this relationship that we have with other believers has both a a positive and a negative side to it. It's something that, that is advocated and something that warns against. The positive is that our life with fellow believers can be deeper, richer, and more significant than we imagine. I don't know about you, but coming to this place and sharing my struggles of the week. Having someone say, how are you doing? And actually stopping to listen about how you're doing. That's important. That gets me through a lot of things that I would otherwise struggle with. When we have these moments together, it enriches our life. But there's also a warning that's encapsulated in this idea of connection with other believers, and that is our life's most important relationships should not be centered around connections with individuals who don't understand the deep truth of what it means to be a believer. I'm not saying we shouldn't have relationships with lost people. If we don't have relationships with them, how will they ever learn of the truth of who Christ is? We must connect. We must share. We must have relationships and and get to know people, walk with people, walk alongside people in their hurts and in their pains, pointing them to who Christ is, pointing to them how Christ can deliver and help and, and instruct. But if you've created and you've made your central, most important relationships with people who are not believers, 
you're not going to be as effective as you could be, and you're not going to be uh, enjoying life the way you should be. We live in two different worlds, believers and non-believers. We have two different worldviews. At the core of who we are, we are different. What fellowship does darkness have with light, Scripture asks us? What koinonia is possible in that environment? And so, yes, we, we connect with non-believers. We walk with non-believers. We, we minister to non-believers. We love on non-believers. But we must have at the core of our connections a relationship with believers that teach us, instruct us, challenge us, correct us, comfort us. The second type of koinonia is with God himself. John writes here, And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. Where's the Spirit? Why doesn't John bring in the Spirit here? Where's the third person of the Trinity He's in the letter from John. 1 John 3, 24 and 4, 13 says that Jesus has given us his spirit. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. 1 John 3, 24. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. The Spirit plays an integral role, especially in the life we live today, because we are 2,000 years separated from when Jesus walked the earth. We, don't, we can't say we have heard, we have seen with our eyes, we have observed, and we have touched with our hands what Jesus did. We don't have that testimony for ourselves, but we have what? John's testimony that's communicated through the Spirit that speaks to our life and our experience as the Spirit dwells within us. And I believe that the Spirit comes out quite clearly in the last verse of our passage this morning. We are writing these things so that our, or your, depending upon the manuscript you're using, joy may be complete. John's either saying here in this passage, we're writing these things because this is our mission, this is our drive, this is our passion given what Christ has given to us, our joy is not complete until what? We share it with somebody, just as I was reflecting on earlier. No experience of joy and awe is complete until you're able to tell somebody else about it. But he could also be saying, and both are true, both are biblical, both are found elsewhere, if this verse doesn't exactly teach it, the scriptures do, he could also be saying that your joy may be complete. In other words, what he's saying is that I want you to understand that apart from a connection with Jesus, apart from this fellowship with the Father and with the Son, as expressed to us through the Spirit, your joy is not what it could be. Your life's not what it could be. 
John is writing to believers here, people who have already responded to Christ. But he's trying to teach them and instruct them what it means to have that intimate walk. He's doing what? He's helping them take those baby steps. He's holding their hands as they learn how to walk in the Lord. Because we talk a lot about the decision that we make to come to Christ, to follow Christ, to to surrender to Christ. But I think sometimes we forget that Christ called us to disciple and instruct people in how to walk in Christ. Not just the be good, don't do bad type thing, but to truly fellowship with him, truly connect with him. to experience the fullness of joy that Christ alone can offer. I think if we're honest, we all have those times in our life, maybe some more so than others, when our Christianity is really not providing the joy that it should, when our relationship with God really doesn't take us to the depths that it ought to. when we wonder if it's worth it. When we struggle with what we've been called to and how we seem to have so often failed at carrying it out. We all have those moments. But John is writing here today, communicating to us today through this letter written 2,000 years ago to say clearly unequivocally it's not about how you're feeling it's not about how you're thinking necessarily it's about how you're connecting Christianity is a relationship and as a relationship it needs to be fed it needs to be encouraged to be pursued relationships don't just happen you meet somebody they're great, they're wonderful, you're, they're amazing I like you, you like me that only goes so far for so long unless you're willing to invest and connect and spend time with that person your relationship with God's no different So John is going to challenge us. He's going to call us in the pages ahead to connect with God. To walk with God. But it all starts with a commitment. And this morning I want to challenge you to make that commitment. I want to challenge you to say, if I'm not a believer, if I'm not a disciple of Jesus, if I'm not a follower of Jesus, to say, Today, I'm going to surrender my life to Christ. Today, I'm going to enter into that relationship. I'm going to connect with the God who made me, and I'm going to follow with what he teaches and what he instructs, and I'm going to be his servant and his friend. It's as simple as giving your life to him, and it's as difficult as giving your life to him. But if you've made that decision, I want to challenge you today to work on that relationship 
to begin pursuing passionately a connection with the God who saved you. To say, I'm going to learn who he is. And in learning who he is, I'm going to learn who I am. And in learning who I am, I'm going to learn how to connect with the world around me. How to minister, how to share, how to meet the needs of people on multiple levels. Spiritual, physical, and otherwise. I'm going to commit to that journey this morning, here, today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for each person here. God, I pray that if there is someone here who does not know you, doesn't have a relationship with you, that you would draw them, that you would reveal to them, that you'd speak to their hearts, to their minds. They would come to understand how significant and important such a decision is. God, I pray for myself and my brothers and sisters here this morning. You would help us to get passionate about pursuing our connection with you. Driven by a desire to see our relationship go deeper. And so doing, finding the joy that you alone can provide. Lord, use this time for your purpose. To speak to your people. We love you and we praise you in Christ's name.